Welcome to Music for Life, exploring the purpose and value of music to humanity's enrichment. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is the final movement of a box suite called French Overture in B Minor. This movement is titled Echo, and it is performed here on the piano by Angela Hewitt. This piece is called Echo because it was originally meant to showcase the loud and soft dynamics possible on the double manual harpsichord, with one manual being able to play loud and another soft. And on the piano, with all its dynamic variety, the pianist is easily able to make these echo-like effects. The idea of phrases or instruments echoing, answering, or imitating other phrases or instruments is a common one throughout music, and in this episode we will explore antiphonal devices in music, this technique of employing statements and echoes, questions and answers, and calls and responses as an attribute in many compositions of the standard repertoire. In our Sounds of Scripture segment, we will see the prevalent usage of antiphonal music in biblical times, and in our Classroom Corner segment, we explore the basic and yet profound principle of imitation and mimicking in music education. All this and more on today's episode of Music for Life, Antiphon, Imitation, and Echo. The idea of imitation in music is a huge subject. I've been wanting to cover this for some time, but have been daunted by how much there is to cover. I mean, after all, every melodic idea in fine art music is imitated in one way or another throughout a piece of music. So many great melodies are based on a small musical idea that is then repeated to complete the phrase. For instance, the opening four notes of Beethoven's symphony, right? Ta-ta-ta-ta! Are made complete by the next four notes, which parallel the opening notes on the next scale degree down. Ta-ta-ta-ta! The same would be true of Mozart's 40th symphony, the opening phrase... is followed by in both those Mozart and Beethoven examples is what we call motive and sequence. The motive is the originally stated musical idea, and the sequence is the idea played slightly lower or slightly higher than the original. This kind of parallel imitation and repetition helps unify all pieces of music. Some call it question and answer. The first phrase asks the question, and the second phrase presents an answer. This idea 
what might also be called call and response, is so prevalent throughout music, it would be impossible to discuss in any sort of complete way. You'd almost have to listen to every piece of music ever written. So I don't necessarily want to focus on imitation in the melodic sense, but to look more at this subject, more in the sense of the instruments making the music, how composers have two groups of instruments answer one another. This type of music is called antiphonal music, and this device is an extremely ancient one. To see that, let's talk about antiphonal music as noted in biblical times. For that, we will have our Sounds of Scripture segment, where we survey the Bible's many references to music for a longer-sweeping historical perspective on our episode's theme. In this segment, let's discuss the Bible's record of music that involved call and response, or statement and imitation, again, what we call antiphonal music. The earliest account is in the Song of Moses at the Red Sea, recorded in Exodus 15. The lyrics that Moses led the people in singing were answered by Miriam and the women. Verses 20 to 21 state, And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has he thrown into the sea. If you look at the beginning of the song, this is basically identical to the first stanza or so of Moses' song. The fact that only the opening stanza is listed here among what the women sang would not necessarily mean that they sang less. It could be representative of how the song was sung, and Moses did not feel the need to repeat the entire lyrics when describing the women's participation or how they answered the men. Whatever the case, the singing here seems to be antiphonal, where one voice or group states a musical idea and another responds. This is especially indicated in the phrase, Miriam answered them. In the time period of King David, we see another reference to antiphonal singing in the biblical record. This was while David was still young, not long after he defeated the Philistine giant Goliath. 1 Samuel 18, 6-7 records this, And it came to pass, as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played, and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. The phrase, the women answered one another, is yet another reference to a composition's antiphonal qualities. One group of women would sing, and then another group would answer the first group. Many of the psalms imply an antiphonal structure. The most obvious would be Psalm 136. Every verse of the 26-verse composition concludes with the phrase, For his mercy endures forever. Since this is the reply to every statement of every verse, the impression it leaves the reader with is that this phrase was sung in response to every opening phrase of every verse. The psalms that have the phrase, To the chief musician in their header, may also imply an antiphonal treatment, Alfred Sendry, in his book Music in Ancient Israel, believes these psalms featured a prominent solo singer or lead singer, but that the solo passages were offset by ensemble singing as well. Sendry writes, The alternation of subjects, I and we, within the same psalms, justifies the assumption that these psalms were originally congregational songs which must have been performed antiphonally by the presenter as soloist and the worshippers in the capacity of a responding choral body. 
Psalm 5 is sort of an example of this. Verses 1 through 3 are in the first person. Verses 4 through 6 are in the second person, addressing God. Verses 7 to 8 are back to the first person, and verses 9 to 12 address God again. Moving ahead in biblical history to the time of the Jews' return from Babylonian captivity, we see antiphonal singing being used. Soon after settling into their cities, the Jews gathered in Jerusalem as one man, Ezra 3.1 states, and began, under the direction of Zerubbabel and Joshua, to rebuild the temple. The first order of business was setting the altar upon his bases, verse 3 says, so the sacrificial rites could be resumed as early as possible. Verse 10 states, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of King David of Israel. The sacrificial service had been established after the law of Moses, and now the musical service had to be established after the ordinance of David. This service included not only who played what instruments, but even their apparel. Since the foundation had been laid, Zerubbabel wanted to praise God the way David would have done it, as if David himself were still conducting it. There was much fanfare surrounding this occasion, and this was simply the foundation of the house. Sendry writes, as this report indicates, not only the ancient Davidic songs survived the Babylonian captivity, but also the forms of musical practice, among them antiphonal singing. Verse 11 shows this performance, and they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. The priests sang together by course, and they sang similar lyrics to those sung by the temple singers at the dedication of Solomon's temple. Some years later, we come to Nehemiah, who came to Jerusalem as governor in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. His mission was to repair the wall and palaces of Jerusalem. He finished the wall in a remarkable 52 days, at which time we arrive at this reference to music. Now it came to pass, Nehemiah 7.1 says, When the wall was built, and I had set up the doors, and the porters and the singers and Levites were appointed. Sendry says this reestablishment of the sacred music was the beginning of a new bloom of the musical culture in ancient Israel that, in some respect, even eclipsed the time of Solomon. The Levitical singers had the lion's share in this new flourishing of musical art, he writes. Nehemiah 12 shows these musicians in action when the wall was dedicated. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites out of all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to keep the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbal psalteries and with harps. That's verse 27 of Nehemiah 12. This is the first mention of instruments other than the trumpets and cymbals since the Jews returned from Babylon. The kinor, the Hebrew for harp, or basically the string family, and the nebel, the bagpipe-type instruments, both return here to the biblical chronology. Nehemiah says, Then I brought up the princes of Judah upon the wall and appointed two great companies of them that gave thanks, whereof one went on the right hand upon the wall toward the dung gate. And that's verse 31. So we see here the mention of antiphonal-type performance with two great companies. So in this post-Babylonian captivity period, we have two specific references to musical performances, one at the dedication of the foundation of the second temple and one at the dedication of Nehemiah's wall. There isn't a reference to the dedication of the second temple itself, suggesting that these other two performances far exceeded that moment musically and historically. And what both recorded events have in common 
is that they are specifically noted for being antiphonal performances. To close out our sounds of Scripture, I want to play an example from the Baroque era that sets one of these antiphonal biblical passages that we explored today, that of the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. This is from George Frederick Handel's oratorio, Israel in Egypt, where he sets Exodus 15. You can hear Miriam's song, represented by the soprano, being answered by a double chorus. You'll even hear some back and forth between chorus and orchestra when they sing the horse, and then the orchestra plays a short punctuating phrase, and then the choir sings, and his rider, and then the orchestra plays another similar phrase. Here is a recording by the Monteverdi Choir, the English Baroque soloists under John Elliott Gardner.
You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today we are exploring statements and echoes, questions and answers, and calls and responses as an attribute in many compositions of the standard repertoire in an episode I've simply titled Antiphon, Imitation, and Echo. That was the Monteverdi Choir, the English Baroque soloist and conductor John Elliott Gardner singing the finale to George Frederick Handel's oratorio, Israel in Egypt, and it explored the antiphonal nature of the song as recorded in Exodus 15 by actually employing antiphonal devices in that movement, and it was not just used in the choir answering the soloist. The musical ideas were passed back and forth between two choirs, and you heard the echoing of the horse, the horse, and his rider, and his rider, between the different voice parts. And then you even heard the orchestra answering each of those textual phrases with those instrumental cha-cha-chas. That was an example from the Baroque era. Now again, the idea of imitation in music is not a modern or recent concept. In the Baroque era especially, so many pieces were based on this idea, particularly the musical devices known as the canon and the fugue. It's like singing in a round. The canon is more strictly like that. Not only is one group answering the other, as in taking turns, the second group is imitating what the first group stated as the first group continues on. A fugue is an even more complex form of that same kind of imitation, and we heard some fugues in that Handel movement we just listened to. There are so many fugues in the Baroque era, so many examples of what we call imitative counterpoint, that it would be too numerous to go through them. But I do want to play a short piece by Bach. This is the first of his two-part inventions, so not a fugue in the true sense, but similar in the sense that there are two parts going along at the same time, with one answering and imitating the other. Since most pianists have two hands, this piece clearly embodies the idea of imitation in the sense of one hand stating the idea and then the other hand imitating it. It's based on this short statement, which is then answered in the left hand. You'll also hear just a portion of this tune inverted. And you should be able to hear the back and forth between the hands as this idea is explored as well. We're going to hear a recording by pianist Valerie Lloyd Watts.
That was the first of J.S. Bach's two-part inventions for keyboard performed by pianist Valerie Lloyd Watts. You could hear the main idea, or the subject as we call it, being alternated between both hands, a call-and-response type idea throughout this short piece. As we move into the classical era now, composers continue to use imitative counterpoint in the forms of canons and fugues, but a great example of a two-part piece where you can hear the back and forth or the call and response is in this beautiful soprano-mezzo-soprano duet from Mozart's Great Mass in C minor. The Latin text of this movement praises God the Father and His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, and sometimes it's easier to pick up on this idea of call and response or antiphonal music when hearing the human voice, even though the soprano and mezzo voices are somewhat similar, except that the latter has a stronger lower register. You'll hear the back and forth between the voices, and then, in a stroke of genius, Mozart puts both voices on the same pitch, but having them each alternate in a beautiful climax to this exquisite duet. We're going to hear a recording by the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields under Sir Neville Mariner, the soloists are soprano Dame Kiri Takanawa and mezzo-soprano Anne-Sophie von Otter. Thank you. 
You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today's episode is titled Antiphon, Imitation, and Echo, and in it we are exploring statements and echoes, questions and answers, and calls and responses as an attribute in many compositions of the standard repertoire. That was the soprano-mezzo-soprano duet Domine Deus from Mozart's Great Mass in C minor. You heard the back and forth between the soprano and the mezzo-soprano in that movement. As we move into the Romantic era, there is an absolutely majestic demonstration of this idea of antiphonal music, a statement and response. It's in the Oratorio Elijah by Felix Mendelssohn. This movement is set up with a recitative where the mezzo-soprano sings this adaptation of Isaiah 6. Above him stood the seraphim, and one cried to another. So even that text indicates that we're going to hear some back and forth. And how Mendelssohn does that is he uses a quartet of treble voices, usually four women, to sing the original statement of holy, 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 as found in Isaiah 6. And then the chorus responds in an imitation of what the treble quartet sang. However, when the choir responds, it's massively louder. So it's a magnificent antiphonal movement, the statement by a few and a response by the many. Not an echo in the sense of being quieter, but a reply, a majestic reply by the many to the statement of the few. Regarding this movement, when we opened Armstrong Auditorium, we performed Mendelssohn's Elijah as the inaugural concert on a Sunday afternoon. But the previous Friday evening, we had a special shorter dedication ceremony at which we performed four pieces with professional orchestra. Two of those were from this oratorio, and one of them was this movement in particular that I'm about to play. I should also mention that when it comes to Music for Life episodes, there's usually one or two pieces that spark an idea for a particular episode, or one piece which is the whole reason I want to do the episode so I can play that piece. This movement from Mendelssohn's Elijah is that piece for this episode. We're going to hear a recording by the Edinburgh Festival Chorus and the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment under Paul Daniel.
That was Holy, Holy, Holy from Mendelssohn's Elijah. That was an antiphonal movement where the quartet of treble voices stated the main idea, and then the full chorus and massive orchestra replied by repeating what had just been sung by the first small group. We've been exploring this idea of questions and answers, calls and responses, and statements and echoes as an attribute in many compositions. In some cases, we've discussed it in terms of one group echoing another. Of course, echo implies something quieter, but in many of these cases, the response, the reply, or the echo, has been done by a larger group and is therefore louder. We hear this idea a lot in the genre known as the concerto, where a solo instrument is paired with an orchestra. There's a great moment in one of these concerti from the Romantic era that has a dramatic use of back and forth between the soloist and orchestra. When you had a soloist paired with a larger ensemble, composers love to make great use of this idea of one echoing the many or vice versa. We hear this used powerfully in the first piano concerto by Johannes Brahms. theme of the work presented by the orchestra. The pianist will come in later and do similar things on just the one instrument. Oftentimes in concerti, the back and forth happens more as sections or phrases, as in the orchestra plays a section or a phrase, and then the soloist plays a section or a phrase. But as this piece builds toward a climax in the middle of the first movement, the composer experiments with the idea of the back and forth getting closer and closer to where it's only a beat apart. This intense and quick back and forth leads right into the restatement of the main theme here in this recording by Alfred Brendel with the Berlin Philharmonic under Claudio Abbado. Listen to this. Isn't that something? The back and forth happening every beat creates such a powerful climax to that movement. As we move into the modern era, we see the same techniques being employed. In the genre of the concerto, we continue to hear much use of this back and forth between soloist and orchestra, as if one is asking the question and the other is providing the answer. You hear this a lot in the first movement of the cello concerto by Dmitry Shostakovich. Let's hear that performed in this recording by cellist Mstislav Rostropovich with the Philadelphia Orchestra under Eugene Ormandy. Thank you. 
That was the first of a four-movement cello concerto by Dmitry Shostakovich. We heard it performed by cellist Mstislav Rostropovich. And that was the Philadelphia Orchestra under Eugene Ormandy. You heard a lot of statement and response or question and answer type devices used between soloist and orchestra in that movement. That was an example from the modern era that used this device we refer to as antiphonal writing. I want to play another example from much later in the 20th century. This is by my composition teacher in college, Dr. John Cheatham. This movement is actually titled Antiphon. It's based on a George Herbert poem of the same name. So the poet was invoking this idea of the masses replying to the one. The poem reads, Let all the world in every corner sing, My God and King. So the phrase, my God and King, in the poem at least, was intended as the antiphonal reply to the first phrase, let all the world in every corner sing, hence the title of the poem, Antiphon. And you'll hear how Dr. Cheatham treats that text in this choral piece. He doesn't have a soloist sing the one phrase and a chorus sing the other, but he uses the chorus antiphonally as first the treble voices sing the opening phrase and the lower voices reply. This back and forth continues until everyone joins together on the second phrase, my God and King. Here is a recording that our college's university singers did at the American Choral Directors Association convention in Washington, D.C. back in 1995, conducted by Dr. David Rail. This piece is the second of a two-movement choral suite called Reflections from a Country Parson. So you'll hear the quiet ending to the previous movement here before the ladies come in with the phrase, let all the world in every corner sing.
That was the University Singers of the University of Missouri-Columbia, with conductor Dr. David Rail performing a choral work by John Cheatham, with text by George Herbert based on the poem Antiphon. And it was treated antiphonally as the treble and bass voices of the choir alternated singing certain phrases of text. Next, let's have our Classroom Corner segment, where we explore different methods and curricula for introducing young people to music. Mimicking and imitation play a key role in music education and in the education of young people in general. In his book, The Plain Truth About Child Rearing, Garner Ted Armstrong explains that there are two methods that young children learn through, association and imitation. One of the most powerful ways children learn is by observing what others do and mimicking them. Children learn a lot from watching what their parents do and imitating what they see. Andrew Meltzoff, a psychologist from the University of Washington, performed an extensive study on how children learn through imitation and recorded his findings in a report titled, Born to Learn What Infants Learn from Watching Us. In one study, a group of 14-month-old infants were introduced to six different objects. An experimenter performed specific actions with these items while the infant just watched without being allowed to touch. One of the objects was a flat box with a yellow panel on the top, which the experimenter first looked at before leaning down and touching their forehead to the panel to make it light up. This was designed to be an unusual action that you would typically not do to see if the infant would replicate the same action later. Two control groups were also used to make sure that children would not just accidentally do the target action while they were playing with the objects. After a one-week delay, children were presented with the same objects that they had watched the experimenter using, Two-thirds of the imitation group of infants pressed their foreheads against the panel when it was put in front of them as they had seen done the week before, while none of the control infants performed this target action without having had it demonstrated to them. Taken into the realm of music, teachers are constantly getting students to mimic or imitate what they want by demonstrating those things to them. With young students, music teachers in a classroom situation will point to themselves as they sing a short phrase and then point to the students, indicating that they want them to sing the same phrase. In fact, in my choral conducting class in college, the first assignment we had was to teach the class, a room of our peers, a melody that they hadn't heard before by simply singing short phrases to them by employing this basic technique of statement and imitation. This is teaching in its most basic form, really. And yet, as we got more advanced in our understanding of conducting and running rehearsals, our teacher, Dr. David Rail, made sure that we never forgot this basic principle that demonstrating to your ensemble what you want is far better than just describing what you want verbally. They were more likely to do what you demonstrated for them rather than what you described because they could try to imitate what you had just shown them. And he had a saying that embodied this concept, Tell me and I forget. Show me and I remember. This has been Classroom Corner. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today we have explored statements and echoes, questions and answers, and calls and responses as an attribute in many compositions of the standard repertoire in an episode I've simply titled Antiphon, Imitation, and Echo. Finally, let's have our dessert for today, where we end the program with an example from the popular or folk tradition. Now, there's plenty of call and response in these styles. Jazz is full of these, though I won't be playing one of of those today. I will mention, however, that there's a great YouTube video of Ella Fitzgerald and Mel Torme doing some back and forth scatting, which is really quite astounding. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, and we can also tweet that link if you follow at Music for Life PCG on Twitter. 
Call and response or statement and reply isn't just the musical equivalent of question and answer. It can also be the musical form of an argument, as in point-counterpoint. This is humorously used in the song America in West Side Story. Some women are trying to convince their male friends about the virtues of America over that of their homeland, Puerto Rico. You hear the back and forth, or the argument musically, between the ladies and gentlemen. This is from the original soundtrack recording from the Oscar-winning movie musical by Leonard Bernstein. Buying a credit is so nice. One look at us and they charge twice. I have my own washing machine. What will you have though to keep clean? Skyscrapers bloom in America. Cadillacs bloom in America. Industry boom in America. Well, in a room in America. New housing with more space. Lots of doors slamming in our face. I'll get a terrace apartment. Better get rid of your accent. Life can be bright in America. If you can fight in America. Life is all right in America. If you're all white in America.
You have been listening to Music for Life, a production of KPCG 101.3 on the FM dial in Edmond, Oklahoma. From the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus, I'm Ryan Malone. Thanks for joining me.